0: On this week's episode of Locked In with Ian Bick, I interviewed Josh Austin, a military veteran who struggled with PTSD and addiction after coming out of the service. Thank you guys for tuning in to Locked In with Ian Bick, and I hope you enjoy the show. Before we jump into today's interview, just a couple quick announcements for you guys. If you guys could take a second and complete the survey in the description. If you're listening to this on YouTube or on our audio streaming platforms, click on that link to the survey. It helps us make our show better gets feedback from you guys, what you want to hear, what you want to see more of, maybe even what you want to see less of. So when you guys get a second, just complete that interview for us. Also, on our YouTube channel, we are now offering an exclusive membership for $4.99 a month. You could get access to interviews days in advance before they drop. You could see behind-the-scene photos with our guests, and you can also interact with me personally. I take the time to run all of my social media accounts So whenever you see us liking, commenting, whatever, that's me responding to you. All right, guys, thank you for tuning in to Locked In with Ian Bick. Thank you for all the love and support you've been showing us. As always, remember to like, comment, subscribe, share, and thank you guys for tuning in to Locked In with Ian Bick. Josh, welcome to Locked In with Ian Bick, Mm -hmm. man. You're another uh, Connecticut guy i am yes yeah thank yeah. you for coming on the show and you were just saying you've listened to every episode of locked in so you know it's it's cool to have the tables reversed for you and now you're a guest on the show
1: yeah when i reached out to you um i was driving back from north carolina saying some goodbyes final goodbyes to some people and uh i just i i was driving and watching it at the same time and i was like i'll message him and like not expecting a response and i, I was like you know he responded and so i was like oh i'll just send him what i want to say see how it goes. And
0: And you're our second guest besides my dad, who hasn't been to prison before, but has like a unique story, a a unique perspective. You're in the military and your path kind of unravels from there. Um, But let's start at the beginning. Where are you from originally and how did you grow up?
1: So I was born in Pennsylvania. Uh, I only stayed there about a year, Erie. And uh, my mom moved to North Carolina when I was about two. Uh, that's where I grew up. I grew up in a little small town called Belmont, North Carolina. Um, it's literally 30 seconds from Charlotte, just right across the bridge. And uh, when I tell my story, I, used to, I, I say that I thought I grew up in what I thought to be a normal home. And it seemed normal to me. My dad was an over-road truck driver. Um, he dropped out of high school probably 16, 17. Um, that's all he knew. He got his CDLs at 18 at that point, And uh, he would leave on Sunday nights, and he wouldn't get home till Friday's. So that was normal. That's all I knew. He, uh, you know, he was a great man. He taught me a lot of things, but he wasn't there. Um, and my mom, she was a stay-at-home mom. Um, but at the same time, she was in and out of working, some jobs. It was weird. And these events were between 8 and 12. Um, and she got a major back surgery at some point. And uh, now I know she was on those Oxycontins. And uh, I didn't know what, was I, what I was witnessing. I would see her on the couch just nodding out. Uh, cigarette burns on the couch. She'd uh, go very irate sometimes, uh, just for out of nowhere. And I didn't know what I was seeing. I was just confused. And it didn't seem normal at that point. And, um, and so I was embarrassed to have anyone over at the house. The house stunk. It was messy. It was disgusting. Like, I didn't clean. My, my sister didn't clean. My mom wasn't cleaning. And uh, we had a couple of dogs. And it was, we were just, we we're nasty people.
0: And was it, what would you say, lower class, middle class? Uh,
1: we, we fluctuated between extremely poor. Um, uh, for example, there were times we didn't have hot water, and uh, we, didn't ha- we got food out of the food pantry at the local church that was stale. And then we had periods of time that I feel like we were upper middle class. My dad uh, started his own trucking company and bought um, two uh, Ken, Kenworth trucks that were valued probably at that time four or 500000 in the in the mid-90s. And he was able to just get that? I, I don't
0: even know what happened. <laughs> Do you think he did something like illegal or anything?
1: Uh, or? No, I found out a lot of stuff moving forward. Uh, you know, my, I guess before my dad died, he got a notice years later that my mom didn't pay any of the taxes to the IRS. Uh, and at this point, it wasn't a criminal situation. It was just, we're taking everything from you as much as we can. And, uh, but he, he wasn't aware. My dad wasn't book smart. Um, he didn't have a high school education, but he was a hard worker. Uh, he worked for us. He, we, we never went without the essentials. Um, and my mom was going through an addiction that I wasn't, that I didn't know. Uh, she was hiding it. He wasn't there. You know, it was easy to hide. And at some point, she started drinking alcohol as well on, on, on the Oxies, which is a no no. And um, things really started to go kind of dark for me at like 12 or 13. Um, my mom was. I think oh, like she was in and out of rehab, but I didn't know what was going on. I walked into the bathroom one day and there was blood everywhere and my mom was cutting herself. Oh, wow. And that was shocking. I like, you mentioned 12 years old seeing someone that you loved in blood and I just shut the door real quick.
0: And what was going through your mind? Like the second you saw that? I,
1: I, I mean, it's hard to answer that question now because I am 34 and I, I feel differently. I have different upbringing or different uh, education. But as a 12-year-old kid, I was terrified. I thought someone was dead, and it was my mom. And uh, she, you know, when I opened the door, she looked up, surprised, razor cutting. And I went and got my dad, and my dad came in. I said, Dad, you just need to go to the bathroom. And uh didn't even know what to describe what I was seeing. And uh, he opened the door, and, you know, he obviously was very shocked. And she went in periods of uh, psychiatric units and— you know, it was very sad at times because she was locked out of the house, and my dad said, "Under no circumstances, let her back in." And it's hard to do at twelve, you know, because you don't know what's going on.
0: So, do you have no relationship with her at this point?
1: Uh, now or then?
0: No, then, like as this was all occurring. Uh,
1: no, she was very, um, she was very inconsistent. She uh, people came. We went to Christian school. Uh, the youth pastor would come pick us up. Uh, they would come pick us up for church. I mean, basketball practice, everything that I needed to do, I was dependent on someone else. She just, we didn't even ask her. Like, I mean, she was high one day driving and hit one of the curbs and blew a tire out and I had to change it, you know, 11, 12 years old. And I'm not strong enough at that point to do that, but you know, I had to do it.
0: That's traumatic in itself. And
1: she's screaming at the top of her lungs. And you know, it's like, you don't understand as a child what's going on. And so we, we had somewhat of a relationship. Like there were periods of times when she was sober, it was okay. Um, and she would work. She worked as a bookkeeper for a while uh, in Belmont for a long time. And uh, but what she was doing, she was drinking Jim Bean in her in her cup. You know, she became a functioning alcoholic. And uh, and so the cutting thing happened, which was one of my first memories that I can like traumatic memories uh, that I can remember. And then my parents, my mom, and my dad set me down at the table. And said, Josh, uh, we need to tell you something, and um, you're not going to understand this, uh, but we need you to pack a bag, and you're going to have to go live with your grandma, like tomorrow. I'm 12 or 13 years old. I'm very immature at almost every step of the way. So, um, you know, I was wetting the bed till 11 or... Like, that that was my... I did that too. ...situation, okay. (laughs) And uh, I'm like, what do you mean? Why am I going to go live with my grandma? And then they dropped the first truth bomb on me that I had ever been told in my life, which started the, the, the trust issues. My mom said, your dad is not your real dad.
0: Wow, really? Last, like that.
1: Their last name was Davis. My last name is Austin. It never occurred to me in school. My sister was Davis. I was Austin. And at 13, it, do you think about your last name? I didn't. I was a care, carefree guy. And I said... I didn't even know what to say. He was the only person I knew. And I said, okay, uh, well, so I don't understand why I got to go to my grandma's. And they said, well, um, your dad is in prison. Your biological father's in prison. And he is trying to sue for custody of you from prison. Well, I don't know if that was possible. Do you know what he was in prison for at that time? I do. He was uh, arrested and uh, convicted of raping three uh, young girls. Holy shit. And so this is where the situation got very confusing for me at 13 years old. I didn't know what rape was, okay? They just said that he didn't tell me rape. They just said he did something very bad and he's in prison. So as a 13 year old, like, okay, if someone does something and he murdered someone, like in my mind, it's murder. Yeah. And, uh, and so <laughs> I, uh, I said, okay, I'll go pack the bag. And, they, and then they never brought the conversation up again, ever. I never went anywhere. And so then I knew my parents had a file cabinet, and I went in the file cabinet. don't know why. I just went through um, the paperwork in there, and what I found out that was my mom was on some type of registered list as a victim that if he was to die in prison or to be released or to escape, that she would be notified. Now, I don't know what that necessarily means today. Never, we've never talked about this because I felt like something traumatic may have happened to her, and because she's my mom, I don't want to have that conversation like, that's not something i want to say to her and so i I pulled the papers out and i started to read what the transcripts from the court and this and is all when you're 13 years 13, old yeah no yeah. maybe 12 I, I, I say 13 but yeah and so i start reading these transcripts and uh you know i have no understanding of legal jargon or you know prosecution or defense like I don't know. Like I've seen judge Judy, right? Like that's comedy.
0: (laughs) And what year is this just to put it into perspective?
1: I'm I'm born in 88. So, uh, what 13, that's 2001. Okay. Uh, June somewhere around there. And so I pull these papers out and I start reading them and, uh, I start seeing the word rape. Uh, I've heard the word rape before, but it just didn't, they didn't tell me rape, you know? So I, I knew that was a sexual offense and I saw the ages of the girls and, uh, I saw their testimony. They all identified them, him in a car, a, a, a certain car. All None of the girls knew each other. Um, you know. And, and reading that as a 13-year-old, I, I wish I could read it today, but reading yeah. it as a 13-year-old, you know, it seemed like, hmm, looks like he did it, right? Like, and they didn't tell me he did it. They didn't tell me he didn't. They just said, this is what's happening.
0: How much time was he serving to?
1: Uh, he was, uh, I think he got 56 years. And he was eligible for parole
0: when I was forty-six. So, because of the fact that he was like petitioning to reclaim custody or whatever,
1: that was his initial sentence. He was he uh, the um, and I can't honestly remember exactly what the judge said, but this was these it was sodomy. Uh, It was forcible rape. I mean, I might not be saying the actual legal term, but it was very graphic what these girls accused him of.
0: But he was trying to reclaim custody of you or or Uh, claim something from... His
1: name was on my birth certificate. And what he was trying to do was get his parents to get some type of power over me.
0: So that affected your mom. mom saying, hey, I want you to go stay with your grandparents.
1: Yeah, they kind of wanted me to disappear because they didn't know... I think now, knowing the legal system, a little that I do, I don't even think that was possible. Like, no judge on the, in their right mind would have said, yeah, take this kid, 13-year-old, from his parents, all he knows, and pre- take him to Pennsylvania where he knows no one. Right, but my parents weren't educated, right? They didn't know. They didn't know if the police were just going to show up with a van and... I don't know what was said to them. I never had this conversation with them. I've never had a lot of these conversations with them yeah. because there's nothing to accomplish at this point.
0: So what happens next? You go live at your grand... No, I don't go anywhere. It oh, gets brought back up. So I, you stay there. Okay. I,
1: yeah, I, I stay there. I put the files back in the paperwork and uh, my mom says, says, hey, listen, uh, he wants to call you. Dennis wants to call you. How do you feel about that? And again, they haven't told me what he did. Okay. <laughs> and I said... I said, I don't know, I don't know him any from anyone from, from a bottle of ketchup. And he was like, Well, she was like, will you will you at least try to talk to him? Maybe this will get him to calm down. And I was like, 13, right? What do you want me to talk to him about? I don't know this man. I, my dad is my dad. Like, I love him. And I know what he's accused of at this point. And the first conversation, I get that call. This is uh Al Albine Prison, A-L-B-I-O-N prison in Erie County or whatever, I think that's what it was called. And, uh, and he said, this is a prisoner, whatever it was. You accept the collect call, Dennis Austin. Sure. And so I say, hello. And he's like, hey, son. I'm like, hey, son. I'm like, hello. He was like, how are you? I said, I guess I'm okay. And, uh, he said, I really miss you. he's, he's being weird. He's never
0: seen you before, right? uh,
1: Yeah. So my mom left when I was one. And she, and, and again, a lot of things I don't know, uh, it, it, she doesn't seem to want to talk about it. And again, I don't want to talk about it because I have a, we used to joke with my mom. She said she was enlisted in the Air Force. And we said, oh, you're AWOL, you're AWOL, you know. And when I got a little older, 16 or 17, we were making a joke at the kitchen table one day. And I said, you know, why were you AWOL from the, the Air Force? And she said, because I didn't abort you. <laughs> she got pregnant while she was enlisted to be in the Air Force. And she just got tired of our jokes. So she was in the Air Force. At, uh, she had me at 21.
0: Wow. It well, abolished. she wasn't,
1: and she was enlisted. She was ready to go to Lackland or whatever it was to, to boot camp. Yeah. And she wound up getting pregnant. And uh, once that happens, you're a no-go.
0: <laughs> so how does the call go with your dad this, this first time?
1: Uh, very awkward, um, but I'm 13. I feel like I have an obligation. I, I, he's presented to me as my biological father. I don't know exactly what that means, but obviously it's important. And uh, so I had casual conversation with him. He was like, you know, what do you like? So I love WWF, Stone Cold Steve Austin, X Pac, Degenerate. Like I was, I started like when he got that out of me. You know, I started talking about the things I enjoyed. You know, and PlayStation and games and, and then I sort of felt connected to him. You know, it was it was manipulation, okay. And, um, it, and it wasn't a long phone call. I, it was I don't know, it was ten minutes or less. And uh, he said, "Well, can I call you back?" And I said, "Okay, I don't care." But then I kind of felt like my dad was upset. My, my real dad, my, my dad, dad, the, who was raising me. Like I, a
0: little jealousy or something. I don't know
1: if he was. I don't think he was. I just felt like I was disrespecting him. Like, but they told me to talk to him. Like, they asked me, you know, when you ask your kid, hey, do you want to do this? And they say no. And you ask him four more times. Like, sometimes they are just going to say yes. And that's what I did. And I didn't realize, you know, I, I don't know. My dad, I, my dad raised me, took me as his own. Yeah. And we never had the conversation. You're, a lot of my story, I never had the conversation and it's okay. Um, but then I, I, I started to sneak and write them. We had dial up, right? AOL. And I, I Googled the prison. I was savvy enough to find his prison number at that point. It was still some type of online system. And, uh, so I wrote him and behind my parents back, didn't tell them. And I went to the washroom one day and there's some hornets and I stuck my arm up and I got stung like nine times from these hornets. And so I just wrote them, Hey, um, you know, this is really weird. I don't know who you are. Um, I read what you're accused of and I feel like you should tell me about that. I said, also FYI, I got stung by nine hornets. Hear back from you soon. And so I put it in the mailbox, snuck it down there. Like, I didn't want them to know. Yeah. I felt like I was like, you know, like hurting them. You know, Cause I was just curious now. You 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 brought this in my life. Yeah. And I felt like, okay, I want to be curious about this. And um, so evidently he gets the letter, reads it. And he writes back. However, they my parents intercept the letter, and my parents sit me back down at the kitchen table, and said, uh, "Josh, did you write Dennis?" You know, I'm a, I'm a liar as a kid, right? I think we all are sometimes. I said, "No, I didn't write. I don't. Nope, didn't write him." And he said, "Well, how did he know about the nine hornet stings on your arm?" And I've always been a deny till I die kind of guy. Like I'm, I'm up until four years ago, I got drunk and pissed the bed and with my wife, and I denied I got drunk. Yeah. So you know what I'm saying. So I, I'm I'm good with the story. Yeah. And uh, and I I was busted, I, I, but I kept trying. And they were like, "Son, just, we're not mad. Just what, what was your thought process?" And I said, "I don't know. You told me about this man, and then I read his stuff, and that he's accused of some horrible crimes. And even at an early age, I thought, is that passed down to me? Yeah. Do I have some type of sexual um deviation? Um, uh, you know." <laughs> I, you know, I, it wasn't as well-known then, but now you read it. Some of that stuff is believed to be passed down genetically.
0: Were you worried about that? Like at that age, were you thinking Um, about that?
1: No, I, I never had a girlfriend. My first girlfriend was my wife. Really? Uh, you know, and so I, I never had sex. I, I, I was, I was 270 pounds, uh, overweight. Probably
0: insecure with yourself.
1: Yeah, I was fat. I was a 40 in the waist and, uh, You know, I played basketball, so I was very athletic, even though I was very overweight. I was just so big. In Christian school, at six foot two, 270, you are the biggest guy, unless you're playing for Oak Hill or, like, you know, teams that Carmelo Anthony go to, you know, or things like
0: that. So you're the odd one out.
1: Well, I I was popular because I was good at the basketball game. So did you
0: have, like, friends?
1: I did, yeah. I had friends, male friends, um, but I never, I had never had a single interest from a female, ever. Not one, not even, like, someone that would have been, like, in my mind, below my... Uh, likings. Do you think
0: that like affected you mentally to want to like maybe go into the military or go into finance um, or whatever? Cause you wanted to like, you know, get that?
1: N- n- no, I, I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, and I, my faith is really strong. It's always been very strong, even though I haven't lived it out. Um, even as of recently, I, I've made some mistakes. And, um, but the thing is, is I, I, I really, I was taught to value women at that point. And um, you know, having sex before marriage just wasn't really uh um, not that it, it, it if anyone wants to do it go for it but honestly there's a lot of consequences that can come from that and uh that and that's what i recognized it was it wasn't just sex it was uh you know like this it's this girl she doesn't know you know she's not maybe not emotionally ready for this and i know i'm not emo- you're not ready for that 17 16 18 really i mean it happens but it's okay um and so no that wasn't the reason for the military um but um with with Dennis, the way that kind of story ended is I admitted to it, and then he wrote me a birthday card, and I opened the card. This is where the relationship ended. Uh, it said, "Do you want to see a naked chick on the front of the card?" Now, get, keep in mind, my parents have still not told me what he's done. Okay, I haven't asked. It's sex conversation with your parents at 13, and I opened. I'm I'm opening the card like, and it's a chicken. A chicken, like a chick, like a baby oh, a chick. chick. Like, okay. do you want to see a naked chick? And, yeah. and, and it was hand drawn and made. It was nice. I mean, it was. He was evidently he was an artist. Um, but considering even if you were just accused and not actually guilty of, um, from what I understand, sodomy, forcible rape, uh, kidnapping, and you know things against girls that were 16 or less. I think the youngest being 11. And I'm with the same page with you. Like that is the only thing unforgivable. Like I will not help anyone that I you know in that situation yeah and so my point was is if you're accused of this then maybe you should not joke like that even if you're innocent like you know like let's remove the remove all appearances of uh, culpability in that type of uh that ideology I don't think it's curable and so I never responded again I sent it to my mom I said listen I'm sorry for writing this card makes me uncomfortable I read his file I know what he did Please don't let this man contact me again. And that was it. I never heard from him again.
0: Now, do you end up finishing high school too? Yeah, you, I did. Yeah, graduate I graduated high at
1: seventeen, um, and that was the next kind of traumatic event in my life, but not as traumatic. I I was working at McDonald's uh, as sixteen years old, and uh, my parents were um, on the verge of getting a divorce. But they again, they they like to sit me down. <laughs> a lot of sit downs. A lot in of the sit family. downs. So I, I appreciate it now, right? They were at least honest with me, and yeah. I didn't have to like good communication. It out. Yeah. You know, they did the best they can. And uh, my mom and dad said, listen, son, um, we're getting a divorce, we're broke, and uh, we can't help you with college. And so I'm working at McDonald's. I'm the fry guy. I'm flipping fries all day, 265, 270, it's 99 degrees on that, that station. And I got these Hispanic people yelling at me, you know, and like, do this, do that. I'm working for seven twenty-five an hour. And I was like, okay, what do you mean? You can't help me with college. You can't like co-sign like nothing. He was like, no, he said, we can't help you with anything. He said, well, if obviously not going to charge your rent, but you got to figure it out. And so I was like, I will, and nothing wrong with McDonald's, right? One in four people have, <laughs> but at the same time, I, I said, this is not for me. I was never driven or motivated career wise at that point. Um, you know, kind of like you were in high school. I was very lazy. Uh, I was making B's and C's until my dad took me off the basketball team and I was making straight A's. Uh, and so I was like, you know, what? I, I don't want to work at McDonald's forever. Like that was my future in my mind, like McDonald's fries. And so I, I had a friend, his name was Thompson, uh, another senior. Um, I graduated early because I, I transferred from Christian private school to public school. And I was way ahead of uh, there. T- I tested out of everything that they need. I only went a half a day uh, from eight to 12 or whatever it was. Yeah. And, uh, and so Thompson's like, hey, I'm joining the army. And uh, what are you doing? I said, I'm working at McDonald's, man. And he was like, you really want to do that? I said, no. I said, I'm eating a Big and Tasty, a fry and a, a caramel sundae with extra caramel every single day. Like, I'm going to be 300 pounds and I'm only six foot two. Like, I don't spread out good. And uh, he said, well, why don't you come talk to this recruiter with me? And I was like, man, I ain't made out for the... I'm not, I'm not like that. And he said, no, just come talk to me. They gave me $20,000 to join cash. And you joined? That's a million dollars. Yeah. That's college, right? And so I went and talked to this recruiter. I'm going to say his name because I don't like him anymore. Jimmy Holler, Sergeant First Class, Jimmy Holler, Belmont, North Carolina. And uh, he's a very nice guy, very salesman, right? At 17, you could be sold into anything, 16 actually. And I, that's when I started the conversation. I turned 17, and he said, I can't legally let you join until you're 17. And, uh, and he said, also, we have a weight problem. <laughs> he said, you're 265, uh, you're six foot two. I can get six foot two and a quarter without your shoes on if you stand up straight. But the most you can weigh at 18 is 194 if you don't tape out well. And so they taped me and they said, okay, you need 25 pounds uh, to lose before we can even talk about joining. And he encouraged an eating disorder. Uh, Not in the sense that maybe a traditional person would think, but he said, this is what you need to do. He said, go home, eat one hamburger patty, one squirt of ketchup, one squirt of mayonnaise or uh, mustard. That's it. And after that, at three thirty, you run till it's dark, and you don't stop. If you have to crawl, you don't stop. And I was committed. You know what? I didn't want to work at McDonald's. And no one in my family had been to college. We were poor. We had crap. Never bought a house. No, no good. Co- nothing. Nothing. Like I didn't care about possessions, but I was embarrassed. I got off the school bus. There was a nicer house down the street with a pool. I would get off there and pretend to walk there and then walk back to my house because I was so embarrassed of the life I had.
0: And that's got to be tough as a kid at that age just to be aware of what you have compared to others and just to have that sit with right. you. I'm
1: 17 years old walking two miles home from school because I was embarrassed to ride the bus because my parents couldn't buy me a driver's license.
0: Are people teasing you at all? Are you getting bullied? Um, uh, Well...
1: Yes, at first. I had it happen in the sixth grade. I was expelled from the entire public school system, because, and that's how I got into Christian school. And over something I really didn't even like, have much to do with, we were sitting at the lunch table playing the game like, hey, do you think you can beat this dude up? And you like, beat the guy up. Well, no, no, I didn't beat anybody up. We were just raising hands. And I was sixth grade, and so was everybody else. And we were like, we were at the football team. And we're like, hey, do you think you can beat this guy up? Yeah, we can beat this guy up. And then this other guy was like a truck. You think you can beat this guy up? And only one guy raised his hand. I'm like, no, nah, I'm on football team. Like, I'm a big guy. I'm bigger than him. And he, he just runs me over. And, uh, and so we said, hey, Keith, sit down for a second. And he said, Anthony just said he could beat you up. And this is like my first like, flash. like remind, This is like a prison thing in my mind. He, he's like, you think you can beat me up? And this kid beat the crap out of him just for saying it. He, uh, his eye gets knocked out of his socket. He's bleeding. It's an eighth grader on a sixth grader. He's bleeding everywhere. I thought he was dead. And they call the police, obviously the ambulance. And I, I don't think I'm in trouble, right? Like we're just, he's in trouble. He's the one that did the violence, right? They call me in and say, uh, they said, we talked to everyone at the table. And they said, you were the one, uh, I don't even know if Fight Club was out there. You were the one, they, they didn't say that. But if that movie wasn't out yet, you were the one organizing this fight, these fights. fights. I said, I said, we were just playing games. I said, I can't control what that guy did. And they said, this is unacceptable. This kid's in the hospital. He has like brain hemorrhaging or whatever. Like he didn't die, but uh, they said, you are never, you're not allowed back in the Gaston County public school system. And they called my parents and my parents were like, well, what do we do with him? Like, he can't. you mean you can't, he can't ever come back? No, he can never come back. He's a danger to the other students. I That's got a bad wild. rap on that. Like, That's wild. But I was big, right? I, you know, I, I was intimidating. I have this face that can sometimes be intimidating. I didn't show much emotion at that point. And I, at that point, I was very aggressive, uh, you know, in regards to my attitude and anger.
0: Do you end up losing the weight to get into the military?
1: Yeah, that's the, so it took me 12 days and I lost 27 pounds. In 12 days? Yeah, I got down to under 240. And at that point, I was taping out.
0: It's like some David Goggins story right here. It's my
1: favorite guy in the world. I I pattern everything I did after that after him. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not David Goggins, but I've run a thousand marathons. Yeah.
0: And uh, so you get into the military, where are you stationed?
1: Well, I, I, I still had, I got down to like 235. I was legally allowed to join, um, but I still had to lose another 30 pounds before they would ship me out. I went to your favorite place, Oklahoma, uh, for, you know, Oklahoma City. The training. Didn't even know there was a prison there. Yeah. Until I started watching. Oh, you. what a shitty place. And uh, I joined up as field artillery because they told me, hey, it's a combat job, but you'll never be on the front lines. You got your $20,000 to join and we'll pay for your master's or bachelor's, master's and doctorate if you want it. But you got to do eight years. Okay, eight years, whatever, that's fine. That's nothing. Like, do that on my head, you know? Like, I'm an order-taking kind of guy at that point. I'll, like, shave, I'm on time. I never had any problems. Go to Fort Sill, uh, get there about 221, um, and I was, I was in shape. I was running a seven-and-a-half-minute mile, which is B group runners. And um, at, at some point, about I was in OSIT, which is uh, 16 weeks a week one. Uh, they were, that was the last class to do that. Some people go to ba- boot camp, and some would go to AIT. You know, in AIT, you were like a real soldier at that point. You could have a phone and do what you needed to do. But in OSIT, you got treated like trash for 16 weeks, yelled at, like like you that was your first day for 16 weeks. And so I got there. I excelled. I I got down to six 15-minute miles, and uh, I fell in love with running. Running was the first thing that I recognized. I'd never done drugs, alcohol, nothing. No pill, nothing. Never appealed to me. And uh, running, though, was a drug. I got really good at it. And that was something I never thought. I I tried to join the baseball team, but because I couldn't run a 630 mile, you weren't allowed, you were allowed to join, but every practice you had to run it again.
0: Yeah, I used to hate running. I was a terrible, I did like a 12 minute mile. It was bad.
1: (laughs) Right. So I just said, no, I ain't ain't doing this after practice every day, you know? And then again, I got really hooked into the, not the fitness, but just the running because the running was a mental escape. I was losing this weight at such a fast pace. And, um, You know, I could see it. Like you know, sometimes you can't see it. I could see it. Clothes weren't fitting. Uh, No one was like saying, oh, you look good now. You know, it was just, I saw it. I saw the results. And that was all that mattered. Get to Fort Sill. I do that 16 weeks of of that. And, uh, you know, I had a couple injuries in there, but it never stopped being. Airdrums ruptured. uh, Got pneumonia. And they're
0: training you to shoot. You're doing all that kind of.
1: Yeah, I'm just learning how to basic, your basic rifle skills at this point. Again, I'm not. A soldier. I'm, in my mind, I'm not trying to be a soldier. I just want my college paid for. And they told me artillery, you shoot bombs in the, you know, from miles away, and you don't even see an enemy. Well, I should have been a little smarter. We're in Iraq with with buildings that we can't have collateral damage anymore. You know, like okay, we're not. Maybe we're not going to use that that field artillery like he was saying. And then they came up with an next caliber round that they could literally, within one inch, they could kill you and not me. Yeah. You know. And so. I loved it. It was a skill that I learned. It was cool, manly. Cool and you enough. did that for eight years? Uh, no. I uh, that's I, I did that for 16 weeks out of Fort Sill. I got sent back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And uh, within and he told me that my unit had just got back and I wasn't going to deploy, at least for three years.
0: That was probably a lie, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. That's
1: why they gave me 20 grand. <laughs> that's, th- th- no one gives you money for nothing, right? Yeah. And uh, and so I get out. I'm 18 at that point. Um, and I get to the unit and it was fun. I, I didn't do, I, they were a little more stricter with underage drinking at that point. I never drank ever. I drank every once in a while, but not out of control. Um, but I stayed in the barracks and just stayed like a good, I I didn't go to the strip clubs. I didn't go, like everyone goes to the strip clubs, tattoos and buys the car for 24.99% interest. And I was just, uh, at that point I wanted to break at least one generational curse that I knew. And that was finance finances that, if I ever had a family one day that they were not, they, they were going to work for what they got, but they weren't going to struggle. You know, they were going to learn the value. And so I just saved all my money, every penny that I was there. I ate at the freaking commons or the, the, the chow hall, which was disgusting nine times out of 10, but it was free. You know, I used, I used their clothes. I used their shoes. I mean, I became this like, not the cheapskate but you know i i wouldn't buy anything
0: well you had a mission like you knew you wanted to go to college this was just like a means to an end like you needed right this is a stepping stone
1: right so i'm about 19 at this point we get the warning order that we're going to iraq and i'm panicking at this point like i can't do that right i go to like this bar i go to bar charlotte i'm crying on the sidewalk in my uniform like emotionally a wreck because i'm going to war and not only am i going to war is they're reclassing me as infantry Infantry, no choice. This is what you're doing. Half of our unit got to Field Artillery, and the other half of us went to uh, Mississippi. And I went through Eleven Bravo training, which I should have went to uh, Benning, but they didn't want to send me to the real one. And so I went there. And then I also became a medic. And then um, I went through this advanced rifle. I went through all these, learned these, all these skills. I could, if you had a sucking chest wound, I could fix you. If I needed to drain your chest, I could do it. You know, I, I like. And I said I could do it. They put me through a six-week class, and I was doing things that, um, you know, I, charge nurses are are probably not allowed to do.
0: Did you ever get comfortable, like, in the military? Oh, yeah.
1: I, 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 so I got really hooked into the running, like I said, and then I, my, uh, my platoon sergeant, which I ended up hating and trying to kill in Iraq, uh, invited me to come on the Army Marathon team. Now, I wasn't a starter, um, but to do on the Army Marathon team, you have to uh, average a, uh, a three- 45 marathon. And that's a Boston a Boston marathon pace. Um and I was running 6:15 miles for 19 miles. I was a beast. I mean, I was 190 pounds just I was so angry at life. Like you know like like David Goggins what he said, he's just he got tired of looking at that fat motherfucker in the mirror, right? I got tired of looking at the poor guy. And I just I kept running. Like I would in the morning you had to do company PT. And that was, depending on your skill level, the fat people got to do, had to do more, you know, and the, the people that were in shape did less, but faster. So I would do like four or five miles and we would do it in 24 minutes.
0: And this whole time you're just thinking about getting out of the military and going to college. That's, right,
1: right, that's it. I'm just doing my time. I, you know, I tried to explore going to college while I was in there, but I just didn't have time and I wasn't driven.
0: So what year do you get out of the military?
1: Uh, I, my active duty ended in 2012. And you go
0: right to college.
1: Uh, yes. Yeah.
0: What college do you go to? Uh,
1: I went to university of Phoenix in Charlotte, uh, and I got my bachelor's degree in business management and finance.
0: And from there you go to Liberty university.
1: I went to seminary, um, and I was initially going to Quinnipiac and, uh, rolled there, started classes there. And I had this, uh, shift in mind frame that my talents were supposed to be used in a different manner. And that I, you know, I kind of skipped through the Iraq part, but I I truly believe that I went through a lot of the things that I went through to help the next man that is going through the same things. And I had no josh to help me through army coming back from Iraq, uh marriage, you know, things that, you know, college, I got my master's degree in a year, 11 months. And, you know, and so I I wanted someone I wanted to be that person for someone uh to walk them through what normal looks like now.
0: Did you have like a lot of I guess you would say PTSD from Iraq,
1: coming um, back? Yeah, we. Um, my first three weeks in country, we had a suicide bomber attack that killed a lot of people. And um, I, 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 I don't try to be graphic about it, but I, I had brain material or something in my mouth. It was that traumatic. And um, when I got there, as, this is how naive I was, I I thought I was just going to work. I didn't realize I was going to the Sunni Death Triangle where the Sunnis, the Shiites, and the Kurds, and this isn't like, if, if me and you get into a fight, the police might be called. You know, if I kill you, you're just going to kill someone in my family. That's how they do it. They don't call the police over there, you know, this tribal. And it's not westernized at all. And when I got there, first thing I remember about the country was the smell. You get to Kuwait first, and they keep you there for three weeks, because Kuwait's a little hotter, and they put your gear on, And you got to walk a mile to the freaking chow hall, even though it's like a golden corral. It's amazing. And that was what really messed me up about Iraq, too, is that I got to Kuwait. And this place was beautiful. There was putt-putt. There was movies. uh, There was, uh, like I said, there was four chow halls that were golden corral style, like any style food you wanted. Um, Phones, Starbucks, Pizza Hut, like everything you wanted. Bathrooms, showers. I was living in nice tents. And then, and then after that three weeks, they're like call my name, and they're like, okay, you're going to buy up, which is Baghdad International Airport, and not like an airport you're thinking, but where Saddam was, his palaces. And I'm like, that's gonna be gravy, man. Like, all right, I get on the helicopter, and the first time I'm on a helicopter, I'm like it's cool shit, I feel badass, right? And uh, I get there, same setup and now we're in tents though. It's tents with the ACs in them, a little different accommodations, but food, food is the same golden corral style chow, chow. And that was my favorite place to eat as a kid. So that was like why I say that. And, uh, internet PlayStation, Xbox. I was like, dang, man, i stay here for my whole eight years. And then they called out a few names and mine was the next name. And they said, we need to go sit on the tarmac and, uh, you're going to your base. I'm like, sure, let's go. <laughs> you know? And, and, and I get there and, this is a different experience this time. I fly from biop, it's night. We, I lay in gravel for six hours waiting for this helicopter. Like, like what the hell? It's like, hurry up and wait, you know? And I get there, they, this helicopter literally just lands like out of nowhere, no lights. I mean, I heard it, but it was just so fast. They get in, they screaming at you to get in and I've got 150 pounds of gear on. You know, I'm only 190 pounds. And uh, I get in and they're, I'm like, hey, where are we, don't, don't talk to us. They, don't, like, shut up, don't say anything. Oh, okay. You know, all right. This must be the army. I'm a private. You know, <laughs> know my role. And uh, and then we get we fly about 30 minutes in the pitch black, no lights on the helicopters, blackout. What I learned is that that their bucket list item there was to blow those helicopters out of the sky. They would rather blow a helicopter out than kill me. You know, they kill me in the process. But if they had a soldier on the ground or a helicopter in the air, they want that you yeah. know, Black Hawk down kind of deal. That was their thing. And and I didn't know what kind of, uh, I didn't know where I was going. I was just expecting the same hotel kind of style setup.
0: And it wasn't like that at all.
1: Oh, no. I got a JSS Copper. And uh, JSS Copper was no bigger than a football field track. Like the, like the whole setup. You know, the track and the field. And we had these 25, 30-foot T-walls, uh, Jersey barrier kind of looking things. And, and then we had three or four 30-foot towers above them. And I'm like, where am I at? And we get there, I get off the plane. They don't even, they, they don't even let you get off. They make you jump out and the, the, the helicopter's gone. They, they're not allowed to stay less than five seconds on the plane or on the, on the ground now because they're a target. And so I got to, you know, I jump out. First Sergeant says, hey, welcome to JSS Copper. We're uh, this platoon, you're replacing us. Their 10th Mountain is who I replaced, which is you know right up here. And uh, First Sergeant, we walked in. He said, you see that PVC pipe? Well, yeah, he said, that's where you take a piss. What? wait mean that's that a joke like no literally that's where you take a piss don't piss on the gravel because it stinks and then he took us to these wood boxes and he said you see these boxes in those bags that's where you that's where you defecate and i said in a bag and he said yeah if you fuck up you're gonna go you're gonna burn it at the end of the night he just to us all
0: and how long do you spend out in this area
1: well uh for the first six three three weeks two weeks i was miserable we did 12 hours on 12 hours off of tower guard and me and my friend beach which was my my best bud ever uh and he uh we sat in these towers for 12 hours each and weren't allowed to sit no books no no nothing we I mean we had those those original ipods at that point that's 2009 that i'm there early 2009 and uh and the first tower guard was fun because you know what it, I can't wait to be in a cell or something. Maybe you you, you maybe you talk to these this guy and a new beach, and we learned everything about each other. I mean, we talked for 12 hours for about three days, and then we had nothing left to say to each other. Like, we were sick of each other. I don't care where you're from anymore. Like, don't talk to me. It's just, you're miserable. It's 125 degrees outside, and then in that concrete box, it's 140. And you got 150 pounds of battle rattle. I can't imagine.
0: That's crazy. And you're not allowed to sit down. Yeah.
1: You know, we, people were falling asleep, and um, I don't think it, it's obviously not going to be carried out at this point. But like in World War II, if you fell asleep on the job, you could be executed. No. Still on the books, but they, 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 they treat it as if it is a bad deal. And what I didn't know at JSS Copper that I was out in the middle of nowhere. And um, I tell people, is it, you know, most people have heard of uh, Restrepo. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a base in Kandahar in Afghanistan, Restrepo. And it's just an outpost out, and there's only 30, 40 of us out there, you know, 50 at the max at one time. And we have to have, we have, to have uh, six people in these towers at all times, 24-7. And, um, and then we had to have four vehicles, 20 people going on patrol for 16 hours a day, roving patrol.
0: Are you seeing any action at all? Like are you involved in action directly? the The, the
1: first three weeks is when the suicide bomber attack happened. Um, and yes, i was I was present there. and uh, again, the, the night being so naive about what what the danger was, and Lieutenant Levi, he was from Belmont, just like me, uh, you know, he was no different than me. He just had a couple he had a year or so of college. But officers that come out of college, you know, they get some responsibility but they, they don't know anything. No. They're an officer, they're in charge, but they don't, they, they got the book smarts. And um, in that event, specifically in that event, that was May 21st, 2009, um, you know, in, Lieutenant Levi and three other people that I uh, barely knew. And uh, I think another 13 men, women and children uh, lost their lives that day. And um, after an AAR review, which is an action, after action review, military does that after everything, you know, successes or failures. Uh, there came out some, there, they came out with some very alarming, not just negligent, but willful acts of, uh, I don't know, um, it looked intentional. And this, this captain had just come out of the Army, and he had just been kicked out of another unit for not being safe. And they gave, they took our captain away, which was, he was a really good, he was a bands man captain. Like he was a, he was a guy, he didn't let the, 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 the rank go to his head. And we knew about this guy before he got there. And what happened is, is when you're in Iraq or you're in war, um, you don't set a pattern for anything. You don't want anybody to pick up on anything that you're doing. And, um, you know, because I wasn't in leadership, I just did what I was told. I got my 50 cal together. I put it together and put it on the top of the Humvee and I hated life. I went on patrol. It was 15 minutes to MSR Tampa, which is their main road with no lines, no directions, no organization. And we'd end up going to these small little towns, these farm towns off of uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers.
0: Do you think that incident affected your future drug use?
1: I used the very same day for the first time in my life.
0: After that incident happened?
1: Yeah, and my therapist at the vet center after going through years of therapy. Um, for years when I came back, I thought I was just crazy. I was delusional, I was seeing things. I knew how smart I was, but smart people don't see things. And there was a situation where a kid lost his life and I started to see that kid. When I looked at my kids, I saw that kid. When I saw a book bag, I saw that kid. And uh that started messing with me because I thought I was going insane. And my wife, I loved my wife. She was beautiful, out of my league. And, uh, you know, we met – I met her on Facebook I through a mutual friend. And uh, when you've been in Iraq for so long, they give you two weeks of R&R.
0: You guys met after? No,
1: no, while I was in Iraq.
0: So you met – you got married while you were in the service?
1: No, I waited. Okay. Uh, well, no, like six months. But uh, – so I was going to go to Las Vegas on my two weeks leave because I had just turned 21 and uh, I could legally drink, and I wanted to do drugs. Like, I wanted to try stuff, prostitute maybe. Like, I was ready to go. You know how the breaking homage, what's that rumspringer? Like, I was ready to try it.
0: Yeah, you, you were grew up that religious boy, and now you want to break Right, free. like,
1: okay, let me decide. You know, like, it's not that bad. You know how like Larry says, uh, what well, he said in your podcast, he was talking about, you know, um, there ain't nothing wrong with drugs. Now, I don't feel that way. But at the end of the day, maybe it should be legal. Maybe you put, put, wouldn't put fentanyl in stuff if it was legal.
0: What was that first drug you tried after that? Duster. Duster, what is Duster?
1: Uh, so uh, computer cleaner, it's, uh, you get it at Walmart and you spray, it just air comes out. And that gets you high? It's like crack, from what I was told. Never done crack, but when I would go speak at NA meetings, they would say, that's crack, bud. And uh, what happened was my therapist told me, he said that you know the science behind the thing is I, I broke my back there in an injury, I, L4 and L5. Uh, and I also had a TBI that went undiagnosed. From my hitting my head, it was in my emotional cortex. I found out here in Wappinger Falls nine years later, and it started to make piece a lot of things together in my life that they missed it.
0: That and the traumatic experiences as a a child too. Uh,
1: Well, the injuries were physical injuries from Iraq. I had never experienced an injury uh, in my you know. I had a couple concussions from football, but I quit after the the mental.
0: I guess you could say.
1: Yeah, the way it explained to me now is that that when you live in extreme fear for long periods of time that it literally rewires your brain. And I understand that today to be true uh, because now I can't do crowds. I can do now, but at t- when I came back, I couldn't do crowds. I couldn't do um, loud fireworks. The first time I heard fireworks, I fell on the ground. Back has to be against the wall. I didn't trust anybody. Um, there were issues where, I, I mean, I never was physically violent with my wife, uh, but at times I was having uh, flashbacks of having hand-to-hand combat with someone I was on top of her about to hit her. And my wife was 5'6", and I mean, and I'm 6'2", 225, fairly in shape at that point and could have done some damage.
0: How often are you doing drugs while you're still in the service?
1: Uh, Just in Iraq. And what happened was I- Just that one time and that was it? I did that one day. And uh, just as most addicts will describe to you, I fell in love with that. And what that drug did to me uh, was it accomplished the, it, it accomplished what I needed to do first try. It made me pass out and I didn't have to have have the thoughts in my brain. I didn't have to see these people. I didn't have to, you know, there were situations where I had to be violent with women and children in regards to throwing them on the ground because it's dark in there. The roof is only six foot two. I'm six foot four with a helmet and boots on. It's scary. The dust and it's chaotic. And you're not trying, I'm not trying to be not be a human because I'm a a very good person.
0: So this was like your breakaway from all of that?
1: Right. So the day that the suicide bomber attack, I was introduced to Candare. He came in my room and I was like crying. And he was like, what the hell's wrong with you? Like, suck it up. Like, if they see this, they're going to kick you out. And at that point, there was a really negative stigma about mental illness. They didn't want any crazies having a gun, you know, even though I was 20 years old. And, you know, they were asking me to take a life. You know, I always told people, you know, the Army does a wonderful job teaching you how to take a life. But what they don't teach you is how to deal with it.
0: Now, when you got home, were you addicted full-blown? Or, or it was it um, just like a thing that you had tried a few times and you were it, okay? It
1: got progressively worse in Iraq. I tried it that first time, fell in love, my brain cut off, I passed out. And then I started to hallucinate, which I loved. And uh, so I made these small little deals with myself while I was in Iraq. I'll only do it on this day. I'll only do it um, if something bad happens. I just made all these stupid deals that I broke them all and i was eventually doing it while i was on patrol and in like the aldora market you know i was literally huffing with a gun in my hand
0: so you're putting like your patrolmen with you in danger too
1: right the first time i got in trouble in the military for that is i i would volunteer for radio watch and even though it was hot as crap in these no acs 1151s doors are 500 pounds you can't open the windows uh because bullets will come in right and so i would always volunteer for radio watch because i know i could go back and huff I was like, okay, I can get away with it here. And I would huff and I didn't listen to the radio. People could have been like getting blown up. I had no idea. And, uh, and that developed. I ended up getting four Article 15s, uh, which is uh, punishment in, uh, in, in the Army. And what that can look like is depending on the severity and the frequency of these Article 15s, they have company and field grades. And the last one I got was the worst one. This is where I had to go see the Brain Ranger. And they were contemplating dishonorably discharging me because i had done i've been I've been demoted four times I went from e4 corporal to e nothing four times and uh, I was putting my other my, my brothers in, in 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 danger honestly they didn't blame me for what we were going through but again I was you know I was selfish and uh, and so the last time they found me face down on the floor in the talk is where all the, the like the communications are and I had just huffed it and put it back on the shelf and then tried to run back to the computer i'd made this game like how far could i run you know i could only make it like four feet before i like boom passed out yeah busted head staples i needed staples and they like you've been huffing again but this time they couldn't find the can it wasn't in my hand and again that remember that lion I'll, i'll stick with the same story forever I don't care if you show me proof at that point. And there was just no
0: help for you. Like no one's giving you help. Or- well, yeah,
1: there, there was no help. Uh, there was. There is a cover up that's going on at that point with the duster. Um, and again, that's that's a that's a whole another story. Um, but there were a lot of sol- uh, military service members dying from the duster in the country uh, because alcohol and drugs were not as prevalent uh, as in former wars. And this wasn't. An, this is to get sand out. This is a a, a widely accessible item. And. It makes you higher. I mean, I've never tried anything else to compare it, but I don't, couldn't imagine wanting to do anything else.
0: So you get home, you finish college, are you still doing this while you're going to college, going to classes? In 2010, I had, when I came
1: back, I came back in February, 2010, I had one, I got, I was going back and forth to Walmart uh, in Charlotte and getting three or four cans at a time, making that work. And then I made the worst decision in my life and had the bright idea that I got tired of driving back and forth to Walmart. And so I decided to sit in the parking lot and do it. Well, what that ended up looking like was four consecutive days sitting in a Pontiac Solstice convertible, you know, crunched up in the passenger seat so I didn't get a DUI. I uh, pissed shit on myself, no eating, no drinking, and I did about 65 cans consecutively. This is when you got back within 45 days of coming back. My PTSD uh, issues were starting to, to onset. They weren't severe yet, but the, the hallucinations were bothersome. Could you have OD'd
0: from this stuff?
1: I, I did in 2020. I died uh, here in Fishkill.
0: That is insane.
1: Yeah, so my dad, I, my, I broke my phone. The this stuff gets really cold. I, I, you, can't, you can't see it, but uh, the can froze to my hand and I almost lost my hand. I had third-degree tissue burns. I had it in my genital areas, my legs, because I'd pass out. And Wappingers Falls here thought about cutting my hand off. But, and then
0: they revived you.
1: Well, that this was a different a scenario, but I I went I went on a suicide mission, and they couldn't revive me. There's no Narcan for Duster. You, it's called sudden huffing syndrome.
0: So how were you able to function through college to get a degree and everything while this is going on?
1: I stopped from 2010 to 2016.
0: Just randomly you were able to go cold turkey?
1: I, yeah. I got, it, there's no addictive properties in the sense of um, withdrawals or cravings. Now I do have cravings now when it's cold outside because that's when I relapsed and I can taste the bitter agent in there. They, they put one to deter you from doing it. Yeah. And, uh, and so like, all I needed was 30 to 45 seconds. If you took it away from me for that long, I would come back to smart Josh, not gonna do that shit. But the thing is, it's such a short high. You, you just go back to back 10 seconds, every 10 seconds, every 10 seconds.
0: I'm surprised you're able to take a break from that long period of time and, and then go back into it. What do you do when you finish college?
1: Well, I, I was working at the Hartford Insurance in Charlotte, uh, make, you know, not making great money, but I didn't have a bachelor's degree and that was their requirement to be an underwriter. And at this point, me and my wife, I was about to kill our neighbor because my PTSD was literally going out, out of this world. He was banging on the walls. And, and so I just, my wife was eight or nine months pregnant at that time. I said, pack this shit up. There'll be a realtor here Friday. I paid cash for the house. I said, we'll sell it. I'll just leave. And we moved to New York. I transferred with the company and I worked remote, which was a bad decision. I uh, had a lot of accountability, but I became, uh, I've always been an ext- extrovert, um, but not wanting to be. And um, because I was in the army, I was in leadership at times. And I, you know, I was put, I, I was always athletic or I could shoot well. Like I was always used in some type of form of leadership. And so I always had to be outgoing, but I didn't want to. And, um, and so we moved to New York. We moved to Patterson, New York. Uh, we moved in with our in-laws. And, um, her parents, her parents. Okay. Yeah. Just t- until we could find a house. Cause it was such a, we moved in two weeks.
0: And this is 2016, 2016. We moved up February, 2016. And you're what? 30 years old about or 29.
1: Mm, yeah. Somewhere around. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere around there. 30. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, two, no way younger than that. 2016 was seven years ago. Um, uh, so 27,
0: Yeah, 27. Okay.
1: And so I get there and I had no job. I was making about $21 an hour at the Hartford as a customer service rep. And I couldn't buy a house here for that. I didn't even, I was a victim of credit fraud while I was overseas. One of my family members went from hospital to hospital and used my credit. So I, I found that out by Fort Stewart trying to get a phone. And they were like, hey, we need a $1,000 deposit. So like, what do you mean? They're like, stop fucking with us. Like you, like If you have really bad credit, you know, and if you, you have deposit, really good credit, yeah. you know. And so I found out that it was a family member. When I got to New York, that's kind of where that started to develop. And I had two options. I was either I either had to get a lawyer and sue them and file charges against them or... <clears throat> What the lawyer said was that I was good at negotiating and that it was going to take years, but I could call and negotiate fifty thousand dollars on a quarter on a dollar. And um, it was my mom. You know, surprise, right?
0: Your mom was the one that did it,
1: right? And went to different hospitals. On my credit report today, I just bought my house. They said we you have to acknowledge that you're a Melissa Perry Austin. And I said, listen, I'm not transgender. You know, I, do I look like a Melissa? Like, I'm not identifying as a woman. Yeah. And uh, they said, it, it's still on your record. We need to be able to come after that person if you don't pay your mortgage. And I said, you know, I said well, it's not me. And they said, just sign the paperwork. You know, like, You're going to pay cash for the house anyway. Just sign it. Like, okay.
0: So what job do you get into then?
1: Well, that was interesting. I, I quit the Hartford because I knew it wasn't going to be enough. I drive to Brewster right there at Acme. I walk into that grocery store and there's a Chase Bank. I have no contacts here except her family i have my resume and this is the first time in my life i'm going to take initiative and kind of be confident i walk in i say hey i need to, sp- uh, need to- I talk to the teller i say hey i need to speak to the manager my name's josh and they said well what do you need and i said well I- i'm new to the area i'm looking for a job i wanted to give them my resume and they said well, we're not hiring and i said okay that's fine i i fully expected that this is not the traditional form of employment i said but what i do like to do is I want to give her the uh, application, whoever it is. And if you do hire, remember that I came in here and did this anyways. <clears throat> she comes out um, and she's very nice, very pleasant. Yeah, we're not hiring. You know, I just graduated college. I moved here with my family. I'm really looking for a, a better job. I love finances. And uh, sure enough, I get a call the next day from the the vice president of Chase Bank and says, "Hey, Josh, I'm such and such. Do you mind coming down back to uh, Brewster here?" and uh, interview him with me. And I said, for what? Like, I'm thinking teller, you know, I got no experience. <laughs> and he's like, we wanna make you a licensed relationship manager. And I was, like, I was like, I don't even know what that is, but okay, Wait, let's but go.
0: But why, just based off your, all you had at the time was military. And he's a bachelor's like, degree yeah, in finance. Yeah. Okay. And
1: so when I got there, he was like, hey, you know, nice to meet you in person. He said, I heard about what you did. And he said, you are the type of person that we're looking for. You have an initiative that I'm not gonna have to tell you to do anything here. And so we're actually not hiring, but after I heard what you did, I would like to open up a position for you. Now, this isn't going to be as easy as just accepting. And I was like, okay. He said, this is a licensed license relationship manager. You, this is Wall Street stuff. And he says, how smart do you think you are? And I said, well, I'm pretty smart. Yeah. Burn billions of brain cells. And I'm still good. <laughs> you know, joking like, being serious, but you don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And uh, he said, okay, well, listen, we're going to do this for you. We're going to put you through a 16-week program. You're going to go to White Plains, and you're going to sit in a class for 20 other people, and you're going to get all your license, your Series 6, all your financial license to be on Wall Street and sell investments and be a financial advisor. And like my eyes lit up because I was like, money, right? Money is, was always important to me, but in the wrong ways. And so it's, a, it's over a 70% fail rate to pass all three tests on the first time. 20 people in the class, only three of us passed every single test on the same time. But at that point I was using actively. I had actually you got, got
0: back to using again.
1: Yeah, I, 2016 was the first time. It was August, July when I started at Chase.
0: What triggered you to use again?
1: Um, I bought a house in Danbury that I literally had to gut the entire thing. And I was doing this in cash. And I, um, I am very uh, dogmatic about debt and I was running out of money. And I had, I had a daughter and I had a baby that was about to be born at Sleepy Hollow, New York, and no insurance. And I was going to, I learned the game. Like they send you a $25,000 bill, you tell them, I don't have insurance, they send you a five, and you're done. You know, it was a cheaper way to do it at that point. And I had not been, I had not been like any medic, I had not been seen by the VA for anything yet, nothing. And so I got caught in White Plains, those big brown buildings down there. That was my office. And uh, I went to the bathroom. Or I went downstairs. I go to Uno's every day to eat for some reason.
0: <laughs> Uno's, what a classic. <laughs> yeah.
1: And uh, one day I got done with the Uno's, and I, I'm a history buff. I walked down. There's like a, a World War II Nazi, not Nazi memorial, but a, a Jewish memorial. And I was reading the names, and, uh, and I turned around. There's a CVS behind me. It's hot. So I walked in, and I don't know what I did. I just gravitated towards the stationary stationery aisle like not like i didn't need anything and i saw the can and i said wow this would be great i remember how fun that was in iraq i forgot about since february 2010 in walmart and uh i went back to my office in this building uh as a licensed relationship manager student go to the bathroom and i start huffing in the bathroom
0: that's crazy
1: and it just took off just right where i was at
0: how much money were you making at this new job
1: Uh, So Chase was the worst paying job. They actually got me for cheap. Uh, They, the salary was 40. I got a $1,200 bonus a month, uh, which was taxed at 39%, which was crap. Um, And then uh, I got significant bonuses depending on how much investments I sold. Okay. Well, at this point, I wasn't, even though I passed all my tests at the same time, I I stayed in the White Plains Walmart parking lot the night before my test at 3 a.m. and got high till 5 and set at least 15 alarm clocks. So I didn't miss these tests.
0: So this is when it all starts going downhill. Like your life's coming together, but it's going downhill simultaneously. The, the
1: PTSD has completely fallen off. I feel like I'm crazy. Um, the the initial, the white plane's the CBS issue. I went to work on a Friday and my family knew nothing was wrong. I didn't come home till Monday. No calls. They called every jail, every, like the first guess was Josh might be in jail. He's kind of crazy sometimes, you know? Or he was murdered. Like they, they literally called every
0: hospital in New York. Is this when your wife starts to realize what you're doing? She didn't even know. She had no idea. No
1: one knew what I was doing. Wow. They, 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 I had never even been to New York before. This was my first time in, in, in White Plains, right? That, that was New York to me.
0: So when does this all start to blow up? Like it, you are getting it together. You're trying to do well, but you're still doing the drugs. But when does it like explode?
1: Uh, it, I mean, it, it explodes it, up into 2020 is when the worst relapse ever happened in my life. And up until that point, uh after the first 3 relapses, I couldn't fool my family anymore. Um I've always they always told me that I was charismatic and that I could talk my way out of anything and that I was able to talk them out of a problem. And because it wasn't a real drug, they, they just said, okay, no problem. Go to IOP. Go to um, Arms Acres or go to MCCA. I went to MCCA. I went to all these places, you know, and just it got you're, them off my
0: back. You're not getting the help you need though. No,
1: no, I'm not. But I'm getting caught at work. And because I'm successful at work at that point, they're just overlooking it.
0: They, so your boss is walking in, you're huffing in the in the back?
1: I was, I fell on the floor in the bathroom and uh, he heard the alarm. That's when he went over there. He's like, Who, what, what's, what's going on? And he, The thing that saved me for the most time is one, I was a good liar. The second thing was that no one knew what I was doing. No one knows what Duster is. You know, Whippets. If I say Whippets, sometimes people know what that is. I've heard the
0: name Whippets before. You know,
1: but huffing the canned air is a whole different ballgame, you know. And uh, he caught me in the bathroom. He said, what are you doing? And I'm so disoriented. I said, man, it was hot outside. I just fell. And he said, so you you fell outside. Is that what your story is? I said, yeah, I fell outside. And he said, all right, go back to your office. And I, I thought I was fired. I had a, a friend, him Ron, here in Mayopac, And uh, he was like, dude, I just heard what happened. And he was like, what's wrong with you? He's like, you got problems, man. And uh, I said, yeah, I got problems for sure. You just don't know. And uh, I was just waiting for them to come tap me on the shoulder. And as having all these financial license, I mean, you can't have, you can't have, a, you can't have any criminal record. Uh, you can't fail drug tests. You have to have tip-top credit. Uh, they run financials on you to make sure that you don't leverage yourself in a way that would lead you to bad financial recommendations.
0: When does like your wife leave out of this?
1: Uh, not until
0: 2018. She, so she leaves in 2018. She's like, I'm done. Like I can't do this.
1: No, I relapsed again very badly. You know, I, I relapsed probably about seven times from 2016, uh, to 2018, all involving Danbury police officers. And, uh, the thing is, this is not illegal to do what I did. I was very smart. I knew it wasn't illegal. It wasn't even considered public intoxication because it didn't meet the definition. And I sat in the passenger seat of the vehicle. So they, they couldn't, they said, I was so high, they would say, hey, go to the hospital. We're going to make this a pain for you. And then I found out they couldn't do anything. And I was like, F you. And then one guy was like, I'm a veteran. I'm like, come on, dude, like don't. I found a dude dead behind like the Walgreens on Main Street just a week ago. Please don't do this to me. Like I literally found someone dead doing the same thing. He's like, please just go to the hospital. And so I would go back and forth to Danbury Hospital, you know, uh, and go, they would sit me, put me in the behavioral unit. And I learned the game really quick. Um, at that point I had, I had uh, got my master's degree, I had some psychology degrees in there. And uh, I mean, I, all I needed to do was pass a couple tests to be a, uh, an actual psychologist, therapist, like legit at Danbury Hospital. And so I knew the rules, I knew they couldn't keep me. I didn't threaten to kill myself and substance abuse is not a real problem. And it's not like New York where they have Kindred's Law. Like there's a lot of things that they just couldn't do. And they, they couldn't bluff me. And they would make me sit there all day. But I knew, I knew my rights. And so I just waited. I said, all right. They said, well, we're not letting you go unless someone picks you up. All right, I'll sit here all night then. And so that was, the, that was from 2016 to 2018. My wife said, finally enough. This is, this is, you're, you're done. And that's when I finally went to 90 day program. I've done a couple 30 day programs. I went to Montrose. I did the VA here in Montrose. I did 70 days there. Um, I did a bunch of different programs. But none of that well, worked at all. I wasn't a participant in the recovery. I you was just, just went to go. I knew if I did 30 days, when I got back, all would be well, go back to work, let's bring the money back in and you're good.
0: Are you making like enough money to live off of at these jobs? Uh,
1: at that point, I was making about 80, 90,000. Uh, but then KeyBank, uh, recruited me. Uh, all I did was go in there to uh, make a, a professional connection between two banks. Uh, and so the, the manager was from Yugoslavia and uh, she said, hey, we're really hiring a licensed manager. She said, what are you making over there in the grocery store? And I hated it. Like it's grocery store clients. Like they're not the same. Like when I worked in Manhattan off of Liberty Street, like those guys were something else, you know, like th- that was a challenge. You know, getting someone to give you millions of dollars you know that could disappear. is hard, right? Like they're ex- like they're accepting that this money might disappear. Yeah, you know, or it could. And so it was a three or four tra- uh, meaning transaction, which I loved. It was like you know, it was like I was working it. You know, that was my thing. Like I could see it progressing. I could see the eyes, their li- eyes light up.
0: So that's where you're able to make like the bulk of your money from when you went to KeyBank.
1: Yeah, they doubled my salary and gave me a lot more bonuses. And and then I ended up being the branch manager of Jefferson Valley, Mayapack. I I got that a weird way. I, they, they want me to sell debt. And that was really the end of the job. I, I couldn't sell debt. It was just against my, I don't, I don't tell people they shouldn't, I just, it was against my morals and values to sell something I'm not going to use.
0: Now, how do you end up getting into legal troubles? Like, when's the first time you, like, break the law or get into, like, a little bit of a mess?
1: Uh, that was on February the 9th of 2020. I uh, I I, re- I relapsed after 14 months the day before. And I went to coup and went drinking. have <laughs> went drinking, you know, with my friend, my army buddy with two girls. And, you know, I was married at the time, but, like, we were disconnecting, but... I was so disgusted with this chick that was there. I wasn't even interested. I fell asleep at the bar because it'd been it'd been six years since I drank, and one Long Island took me out. And so that was uh, that was Sunday night. I was watching some basketball game, and I got up at eleven o'clock. Said, "Man, I'm going to get high. Like I want to do this." I went over to uh, Walgreens on Main Street, and uh, they actually had my favorite. Like, this is how messed up I am. I have a favorite brand. It's the Black Label or the Black Top. There's green, black, blue and they all taste a little different they're all disgusting but that one hit me differently yeah and uh i went there uh some someone always sees me in there like i had at that time i just had a i was very frugal paying cash for cars i had like a just a 2016 nissan Sentra. it was my my wife's car
0: but you're still working at the time
1: yeah and i just got awarded uh over uh, you know almost two hundred thousand dollars from the va from a, a case i won with them they uh, the v, the, the army actually was held liable for uh torture, mental torture. Uh, they made me do things like walk through minefields and like, it's, this is all verified. Like no one at the age of 29 gets a hundred percent disability rating and hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, in back pay.
0: So you go into this Walgreens, what do you do?
1: I just go and get everything off the, off the, uh, it's 11 o'clock. I go get everything off the shelf. You steal it? No, no, no. I pay for it. Okay. It's only $4 a can. And I have, I have no debt and I'm making $15,000 a month, you know? And so where does it go
0: wrong? Well, what's the problem? Well,
1: the problem is, is I was an idiot and I just should have went home and, and people would see me doing things in the car and call the police. And, and
0: you get arrested for this? No, it's
1: not illegal. They couldn't arrest me. And so what the cops would do at first, they would say, hey, listen, either go to the hospital or we're going to have a problem. And- I was, I had, you know, I had these financial license. I didn't want to get a misdemeanor. I didn't want to get anything. And that was another reason that appealed to me is it didn't show up on a drug test. And so, you know, there's about seven or eight incidents with the police in Danbury within like days of each other. Okay. I got arrested on February the 9th. Uh, I went to Walmart to get high all day. It was going to be an all day episode. And uh, so for whatever happened, I walked into Walmart and uh, I walk out and... I was an idiot and I started huffing before I got to the car and I passed out into, I don't know what she, like, if she sees this, I would love to meet her uh, because of the ending of the story. I don't even know what she looks like. All I know is I fell into a woman, a young woman with a baby. And the next thing I know, I, uh, my jaw is broken in four places. I am uh, pushed up against a car, taser prongs in me, handcuffed, and the cops are just beating the shit out of me. Like I'm out cold. My jaw is, my bone is literally sticking out of my, my chin. Okay. And they're pissed at this time. Like they're like, like I fought them. Like I got the best of one of them and the rest of them got me. And, uh, and so they, they, they weren't nice at all. Like hard, like being violent with me even after I like, I was so high I didn't feel any pain. So it was okay. But they slammed me in the car. I hit my head. They take me to the Danbury police station. I just bailed myself right out there. I mean, it's only
0: $25,000 bail. But this was a charge. What was the actual charge?
1: Uh, uh, felony, robbery in the first degree. So uh, this could
0: affect your whole job at this point?
1: Oh, you cannot hold license with a felony.
0: So are you worried? Like, what's your mind?
1: Uh, it hadn't hit in yet. I didn't know what I got arrested for. I asked, when, they, when I asked the cop what I got arrested for, he told me to shut the fuck up. I was like, what? Like, what I get arrested for? You know, like, he wouldn't tell me, you know. He said, we already read those rights to you. Like, whatever, bro. And so I go, they put me in Danbury jail, and they're like, we're going to strip you out, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I'm paying my what's, my, what's my bail? Like, I'm paying it right now. And I said, here's my debit card. He's like, I'm out. And then they made, like, I paid my whole bail. It was $25,000, which was only $2,700, whatever it was. And they made me call my friend down there and he had to still put up a truck for collateral. So I didn't know what was going on. I knew this had to be somewhat serious, but again, they didn't give me any papers. They didn't tell me anything. These cops were just like ignoring me. I never saw a cell. I was in that, been the Danbury police. You walk in, there's like a little cage and you get your picture taken. And then they give you the opportunity to make a call right there. Yeah. And they were like, you should just wait to see a judge. They'll lower your bail. And I'm like, I'm not fucking staying here. Like, I want to go get back high. You know, that's my thoughts. And so I'm walking out of the police station. Some lieutenant says, listen, he said, I heard you're a veteran. I heard you were in Iraq. I heard you had some combat stuff. He said, listen, you're not a bad guy. I already know who you are. He's like, accept help. I'll get you out of this. And I looked at him and I said, fuck you. Like, I don't give a shit about your help. I said, your cops just beat the shit out of me. Not knowing my jaw was broken. Like I couldn't even talk barely. And he said, listen, here's my card. Think about it. And so I was like, My friend, Eric, came and got me. He's like, man, what the fuck is wrong with you, man? Like, are you going to kill yourself? I said, probably. You know, I just got felonies. I got two felonies. Uh, It was, uh, I don't know if it was assault on a police officer. It was something, um, uh, resisting arrest. I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on. The, The only misdemeanor was breach of peace.
0: And what was like the outcome? Were you able, did you get convicted of this? Do you solve it? What happens?
1: Um, because I went to Teen Challenge and went all these rehabs, the, uh, the victim said that I had truly changed my life and that I shouldn't be punished for the rest of my life for, an, uh, for, for a mental illness that I didn't have treated.
0: Was that your breaking point to get clean at that point, this whole incident?
1: E- e- that was my rock bottom. And uh, not only was it rock bottom, it had a trap door.
0: And you lost your wife. You lost your family. Did you lose your job too? At that point,
1: uh, at that point, I had transitioned to uh, as an accountant at Western Connecticut Orthopedic Surgical Center, and that's where I was using in the, the Portageon. And uh, I was I was the um, the senior accountant for a or, you know a outpatient facility. And um, yeah, I, at that point, I uh, was holding some license that uh, pending charges weren't an issue, but I did have to report them. So
0: rock bottom, you're at
1: jaw's broken in four places. Um,
0: how do you redeem yourself from then? How, how, after all this time, why did you want to get your life back together?
1: I realized that, um, I realized a lot of things in the hospital in Fishkill uh, after I died. I, I died in uh, the Hampton Inn here in Fishkill or somewhere around there. The guy said, bro, you're dead, you're purple. And that hit me real hard. And they told my wife I was dead and, and that was the kind of what started to to make me think i you know this this is this is more than a problem um uh, and uh so they walk me out she turns white as a ghost i mean they just told her i was dead no no like not maybe but he's gone and they called the more like they literally called the the truck in and uh i woke up and just like frankenstein and no idea what happened so I'm in that hospital in Fishkill, uh, St. Francis or whatever it is, I don't know. I don't remember any of these places I was at. And uh, the, the, the doctor treats me like a real asshole. And he's, he can tell my jaw's broken, but he's like, I'm not helping you. He literally treated me like an addict. And uh, I'm sitting in that, um, I got pictures, I'll show you later, but I, I, I was sitting in that bed. And for the first time in my life, I acknowledged that I had a problem. And I didn't just have a drug problem, You know, I had an addiction. I had a a behavior problem. I had uh, an eating disorder. I was bulimic at that point. It was a way to control my stress. I learned it in the military. And uh, I had a bunch of issues and that my wife literally had no clue. No no clue. I was just a successful in the community, successful banker, accountant, and no one knew. And uh, in that, I finally realized I had went from 220 pounds to 187 pounds bone sticking out of my chin. I had burn marks all over my body. I was in my underwear. She had took my shoes. I had two guards at the door because I had just ran from an ambulance th- that day. Like, and uh, I said, I'm done. Like, you know, misdemeanors, even if you haven't been in the, the legal system, you think that's overcomable, right? Mm-hmm. No criminal. I had a DUI when I was 18, just a stupid 18 thing, never again. And I was like, all right, misdemeanors are okay. I can, get, I can do that. I, I'm, I'm military. The, the bet card works a lot. But when I, when I learned about my charges and what the cops wrote up and how uh, vicious they, they said it was, I knew this was the end of the road. My life was going to look different. And so I decided that I knew I was going to lose everything and that was okay. And I surrendered and I was confident in myself that even if I lost everything, that even with the felony, I could come back out here and I'm a great salesman, I could go work at sell cars and be okay.
0: And you've been clean ever since, ever since you- uh, I've, been,
1: I've been clean since February 14th,
0: 2020.
1: That's awesome. And, um, and so I, I, I made that surrender I, and I made this promise to God. I kind of came back to my faith. I said, God, don't get me out of, th- I'm not asking you to get me out of these problems. Don't, please don't. don't. I don't want my, don't, my wife doesn't have to stay. I don't need my kids. I don't need anything anymore. God, I just want my mind back. I just want to feel sane. That's it, God. I'll go to jail. Just give me my mind back. And if, if that's what it takes for me to go to prison, I'll do it. Like, I, I literally, I said this out loud. And in that moment, I felt a moment of peace.
0: Did you get it back to this day? Do you feel like you're at peace now?
1: Um, you know, I, 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 it's a daily struggle. I, I don't have any addiction issues anymore. But what I do have is I do have mental illness and PTSD. I, I am 100% disabled permanently and totally for a PTSD for the things that I witnessed and went through in the army. So
0: do you actively talk to someone?
1: I do, yeah, I do. I go to uh, the vet centers, which are very, I go here in, uh, in uh, Danbury, right there, uh, they moved, but right there at exit five, that big brown building is where I've been going since 2016 um, until I moved to Waterford. And then I worked in West Haven for a little bit and I started going there. And um, I started doing EMDR treatment, which I was very anti EMDR at first because I could never close my eyes And um, that was the best treatment. I went to Kentucky for a a CBT treatment where I had to write my trauma out 100 times in 70 days. And the the, the therapist picked apart all of the differences in the story. And what what that helped me was to, to determine what the lies were, what the truths were. Not the lies like intentional, but like the exaggerations of what I saw or what I thought I saw. And when I started doing the MDR treatment, I learned that the 34 year old Josh cannot judge A 17 year old josh
0: and what do you do now what what helps you stay grounded what are are you focused on
1: Uh, i'm very heavily focused on recovery i speak at meetings um for the entire year of 2021 and most of 2022 i spoke probably about 75 times at various faith-based functions in um in connecticut uh some in new york here in lagrangeville and other places i started traveling to north carolina and um I kept doing it, but I was getting money and they were paying me like $400 for 40 minutes of talking. And money's always been an issue with me. Money's always been a indicator of my sobriety and how well I'm doing. And so I started doing it for free because I started creeping back into that mind frame. I'm, I must be something like I must have done something right. And honestly, it was nothing I did. I did surrender to, to uh, rehab and I went to rehab for 18 consecutive months patient in patient and borderline a crack house in New Haven. Yeah. You know, with men that I didn't connect with until I decided I was one of them.
0: Now, what's your message to someone that finds themselves in a similar shoes as you? Maybe they were in the military and coming home, or not even in the military and fall, falls down that path. What do you say to them? How do yeah. they make it through to the other side?
1: Uh, I think that you know, a military person would really understand. We have the Soldier's Creed, and um, one of the sentences in the Soldier's Creed is, "I will never quit." or I'll never leave a fallen comrade. You know, I always maintain my arms, always maintain my post, you know, all all these different things that you promise that you'll do. And uh, what I learned in my life and what I would tell another veteran that is probably in a similar situation is that if you're honest with yourself, you've broken 500 promises to yourself and it's becoming easier and easier to break the bigger ones. And what I would tell someone is if they found themselves in my situation, um, I can't promise a similar outcome. I thought I was going to prison. The Connecticut code said one to three years. The lawyer wasn't telling me, like, I think what he was doing was even, even though he was going to play down the case, uh, I think he was just trying to make, keep me honest. And um, so what I would say is if you find yourself in this situation, you know, faith is really the only thing that's helped me. I've tried every secular program in the United States on the East Coast. I have paid $25,000 out of pocket to go. Uh, to a luxury Malibu rehab, you know, because I thought that's what, you know, a professional needed. And, you know, everything didn't work. I was going to meetings. I, you know, I was going to this, that, speaking, none of this worked, you know, and what changed in my life is when I took the knowledge I had in my head and applied it to my heart. And I accepted that I made some mistakes and I stopped beating myself up and that I truly did not know how this was going to, over how it was going to the outcome was going to be. And, uh, but I said, no matter what, God, it doesn't matter. I've committed to this process. And if that looks like felonies, if that looks like prison time, I'm going to show other people that even with these things, I can do it. So that, that person that is, is in addiction or maybe had just been introduced to the criminal justice system for the first time, yeah, it's scary. Yeah, you messed up. But you know what? Do more than the court is going to tell you to do. That's what the judge said. He said, you've done a hundred times more than what the court was going to tell you. He said, the maximum I could have sentenced you was for three years. And that is if you had aggravating factors or you had multiple different things. And he said, I would have probably given you six months suspended or something. And he said, but you know what? You served 18 months in jail. New Haven Teen Challenge was no TV, no phone, no visitations, uh, 5 a.m., 11 p.m., work. And I did that for 15, 18 months. And then I worked there for $140 a month as a therapist. That's awesome. And so that's when the judge said, you know, he said, you, it was all surreal. I, I've heard, you know, people getting like lengthy sentences on YouTube and they say like they can't hear it anymore. Or, and when he's the, the lawyer told me that even though the, the, the victim agreed to this outcome, that the judge had to agree which I didn't understand. The right. prosecutor agreed, the victim agreed, like there's no crime, right? <laughs> but no, the, I, so I was nervous. He said, I don't know what's gonna happen. I figured like he's not playing around. And- uh, You got a second chance. Right, he said, Mr. Austin, he said, he said truly in the 40 years that I've been practicing law and, and ju- you know, as a lawyer and judging and whatever, you know, whatever it is, he said, I have never met someone ever that finds themselves in a situation like this and just doesn't quit on life and make things worse. And at this point, I'm going in and out of what he's saying because I'm, I'm, I know where this is going to end. And he said, "He said, you know, young man, he said, you know, this has nothing to do with your your veteran status. This has nothing to do with your professional status. This has nothing to do with your reputation in the community. This has everything to do that you are a changed person, and I believe it. But I'm not expecting that. And uh, And he said, you know, he said, You've earned a nolly, uh, a nolly per se, which I didn't know what that was. I was pissed once I found out what it was because uh, my lawyer didn't tell me that. But That was, a secu- that was an insurance policy uh, that I had to stay clean another 16 months, you know, that if I got into a, a trespassing issue, uh, that the state could bring back these charges and would uh, because of another uh, criminal, you know, criminal mischief no matter how minor it was, He's, they said something to the effect if I got a, a, a stop sign ticket. Like, I don't think that was true, but, and so he said, you know, he said, um, he said, you know, I want you to leave here. And he said, I know what you're doing now. I got the letter from Teen Challenge. And he said, you're going to impact men and you're going you're to you're show and walk, walk, through pe- walk with people through the same system. And I have, I have had, I've walked through with other people with uh, very little knowledge of the criminal justice system, but knowing what I just did to navigate it. And, uh, and so I left that courthouse that day and I cried. I collapsed in the uh, stairwell because for the first time I saw real success in my, my work up until then, I was just being used at teen challenge. They, I, I was a commodity at that point. You know, I was talent and they don't get people with master's degrees and they don't get people that have teeth. And, you know, like when you get there, it's either death, prison, or like you've lost all your brain. You know, I'm one of the rare guys that come in there.
0: And you, well, you've been able to make it through the other side. I think you definitely have like a story of hope and a message of hope. And there's so many people that I'm sure are in your position coming out of the military, or even if they haven't been to the military Mm -hmm. and they deal with addiction and struggle. And, you know, a lot of people don't make it to that success aspect of it because they, you know, they, they end up dead. You hear about that all the time. So, you know, I really appreciate you coming on and and sharing your story today and, Mm -hmm. Hopefully we can impact some lives with this with this story. And, and, you know, it's a story of hope and, and success in that. So thanks for coming on Locked In with Ian Bick, and we wish you all the best.
1: Thank you so much.